Hey, welcome to Gospel Community Sermon Podcast. Thanks for listening in. We hope that uh, you enjoy what you hear and that we handle the word faithfully. We'd invite you, if you have any questions or want to attend a service, to visit www.gcctroy.com. How do we change in any meaningful way? How do we go about this process of changing ourselves? We have, you know, you go to the bookstore and you find this whole uh, section of self-help. And most of it is garbage, right? It should be burned. Not that I'm for burning books, right? But you get what I'm saying. How do we change? We have all of these cultural notions about what it is for us to change. Now, 42 years old. And I thought when I was at the age I'm at now, I would be further along. And so this question about how we change is more pertinent or just as pertinent to me now at 42 years old as it was when I was 16 or 17 years old. And I suspect that when I reach 72 years old, it will be just as pertinent then too. How do I become something different than what I am? There's a uh, story that C.S. Lewis writes, a book called The Voyage of the Dawn Treader. And Lewis likes to write in some allegory at some times, and, and, and he has this character, Eustace, and Eustace is this kind of selfish, bratty punk of a kid, right? And he is sucked into this other world, Narnia, and he's kind of bitter and angry about it. And what happens is that um, in the story, the Dawn Treader, the ship stops at an island, and Eustace stumbles upon a dragon's nest filled with gold. And little does he know that by kind of valuing and loving this gold that it will make himself a dragon. I know this sounds out there, but as it were, this is what happens in the story. And so Eustace happens to become a dragon. And what happens in the story is that the person that represents Christ, Aslan the lion, comes and slowly and gently takes Eustace from what he is, this gold-desiring dragon. And he cuts away the flesh. He helps him to become man again. There's this passage, and it reads like this. And this is Eustace speaking. He says, The very first tear he made was so deep that I thought it had gone right into my heart. And when he began pulling the skin off, it hurt worse than anything I've ever felt. The only thing that made me able to bear it was just the pleasure of feeling the stuff peeled off. See, I wonder this morning if we might be like Eustace. We find ourselves to be something other than what God had created us to be, and that we need the picture of Christ to come and cut away the flesh, to cut away the parts of us that still remain that aren't in submission to him. See, the Bible anticipates that we would change. In fact, the word we use for this is called sanctification, right? We throw that word around all the time, sanctification. It's about your sanctification. And really what that word is oftentimes as we're kind of referring to it is just life change, that you and I would become more like Jesus Christ. See, what I think Jesus's prayer is getting at this morning is this. Jesus was sanctified to sanctify. We'll see that Jesus was sent to send, but that he was sanctified to sanctify others. 
that Jesus himself entered this world so that he might cut away the flesh, as it were, that he might make us something different. And so to kind of cut to the chase this morning, we're going to say that true life change comes through the word of God, Jesus Christ. This morning, we want to dive in. And as we kind of get into this message or this prayer that Jesus or that Jody had read that Jesus is praying, we're going to see this kind of breakdown. And in verses 6 through 10, we're going to see that the disciples were gifted from the Father to Jesus. And so we'll see the gifted disciples in verses 6 through 10. And then in verses 11 through 13, we'll see the kept disciples and then the sanctified disciples in verses 14 through 19. I'm going to invite you to kind of enter in with me into this text, into this prayer that Jesus makes on behalf of his disciples here in John 17, verse 6. He says, I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they know that everything you have have given me is from you. For I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them and have come to know in truth that I came from you, and they have believed that you sent me. I am praying for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. All mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. See, Jesus starts and he says, before we, we kind of even get too far into this prayer, we want to just ask this question, who is Jesus praying for? If you were listening last week, Ryan said it. He said it clearly. He said that this section is written as Jesus's prayer for his 11 disciples that remain with him. So verses 20 through 26 are going to be written about us, and we'll see that next week. But as we're reading this this morning, we see that this is about the disciples. Specifically, what clues us into this is look at verse 20. Verse 20, Jesus says, I do not ask for these only, that's the 11 disciples, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. That's us here this morning. So Jesus seems to be praying for these 11 disciples here in these verses. And by the way, we just want to stop and just consider this. Because Jesus perfectly shares the heart and the mind of his Father, we should anticipate that everything he prays here will be answered affirmatively. Isn't that correct? Am I doing Trinitarian theology correctly? Yes, we are. We're we're saying Jesus is in perfect union with the Father, and when he makes requests to the Father, we should anticipate that they be answered. And so we should anticipate that Jesus' prayer in John 17 will come to fruition as it is prayed in perfect harmony with the Father. And so here's what I propose we do this morning. I propose that we look at these verses as a prayer from Jesus for his 11 disciples, see exactly what he's praying for them, and then only later will we see how it affects us. Does that sound like a deal? If we try to run back and forth between what he's saying about the 11 disciples and what he's saying about us, I guarantee you all of us will be bored and confused. You might be bored and confused anyway, but I'm guaranteeing it'll be better if we do it this way. All right, so stick with me. First thing he says is that Jesus uses two descriptions of these disciples. The first is that they're given, and the second is that they're believing, They were simultaneously given to Jesus by the Father and also initiating belief in the Father. Does that make sense? And to our ears, these things feel like opposites, right? 
Do we belong to Jesus because the Father elected us or because we have believed that he came from God? If we land on either side of this coin, we're kind of saying it wrongly because Jesus is emphasizing both to be true. I assure you that human responsibility and sovereign election are not in contradiction, and we'll see this here in our passage this morning. So we're going to start off with this first thing, that the Father gave the disciples to Jesus. Look at verse 6. Verse 6 says this, I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them, and they have kept your word. See, these people were given out of the world. That's the first thing we see. In case we had any wonder, these disciples were somehow super saints, that they were somehow different than you and I. Jesus kind of puts a pin in that notion. These guys aren't any different than us. In fact, they also came from the world like we came from the world. Like you and I, we were uh, kind of bound up in our sinfulness, in our, our flesh. And God called us out of that into his marvelous light. That's exactly what he's doing. In fact, the question we should be asking is where else would disciples come from? Since all of us are a part of this world, all of us are part of this worldliness, how else does Jesus call disciples except from the world? God has taken all of those who follow him, all of those who claim his name, and he has brought them into a different status with God. He's brought them out of darkness and into his marvelous light, as Peter would say. Secondly, they're not just given out of the world, they're given by the Father. We shouldn't be shocked by this idea. This idea that we're given by God, the sovereign election of God, is written throughout the Scriptures, whether it's in Ephesians chapter 1, or Romans chapter 9, or Matthew chapter 11, verse 27. This truth that we are gods, that uh, God has chosen us before the foundations of the earth is written throughout the New Testament. And the New Testament unequivocally teaches that God shows his people before they ever believed in him. In fact, Jesus seems to have just portrayed this in, in verse 2. Right? If you look at verse 2, it says, eternal life to all God has given him. That's what Jesus' job was, was to uh, give or take those that God had entrusted to him because he had authority over all flesh in verse 2. Now he is inviting them uh, and making them believe. The New Testament is clear on this, that the Father has chosen his people. And so here the Father gives the disciples to Jesus. And that's exactly what verse six, 6 goes on to say. Yours they were, and you gave them to me. Don't miss what Jesus is saying. The Father of the universe is gifting His elect disciples to Jesus. He's entrusting His loved ones to His beloved Son. Let's just stop and consider who these disciples were for just a second, right? These are, are tax collectors and fishermen. They are hotheads and cowards. These are, are kind of the, the, the ragtag team of disciples that Jesus has been entrusted with by the Father. And somewhere before the world began, God the Father decided, <clears throat> decided to use this group. Apparently, I wasn't supposed to say that. <clears throat> Somewhere 
before the world began, <clears throat> he decided to use this group of sinful men for his sovereign purpose. And these unlovely loved ones are given to Jesus. See, the, dis- the disciples believed on Jesus because they were given by- to Jesus. So it starts with this giving of the Father. The, the Father, before the foundations of the earth, decides on these 11 disciples that would be faithful, and he entrusts them to Jesus. And look what happens in verse 8, that they're given the words of God and that they believe in the words of God. So these disciples are believing on Jesus, assuring them that they were God's. Look at verse 8, for I have given them the words, the, the utterances, the sayings, the speech that you gave me. In fact, I I think we can hold this parallel with what he says in verse 6. If you look up at verse 6, he says, I have manifested your name to the people. I've given them the words that you've given to me. Jesus is faithfully executing the words that has been given him by his Father, and he's showing the Father to these disciples. If you remember back in, in the book of Exodus, Moses stumbles upon a bush in a desert that continues to burn. Right? We say that now, you would think there was some kind of drugs involved or something else. But Moses stumbles upon this bush that continues to burn, and it doesn't burn up, and he goes and sees exactly what is happening there. And, and the God of the Israelites is sending this Moses back to his people, the Israelites, that he might set them free from the Egyptians. Moses, in the midst of interacting, has this question for, for the God of the Israelites. He asks them, who shall I say you are? They don't have a name for God. And so God describes himself, I am that I am. He says, I am the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. But my name is I am that I am. See, Jesus is a new Moses manifesting the name of God to the people of God. So here they are, given to Jesus, entrusted with the Word, and they believe in Jesus. Look at what verse 8 says. He says, And yet they have come to know in truth that I came from you, and they have believed that you sent me. That's that word in our book here, right? Belief. It's a word that has been used throughout the book of John, this, this purpose for which John has written. I've written these things that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ. And so Jesus is, is highlighting this idea that they have heard the words of God, that they have believed. These disciples have followed Jesus everywhere. And even when the pressure started to mount and people started to leave the following of Jesus, these disciples hung around. And so what's happening here in this early section in verses 6 through 10 is Jesus is building a kind of identity through praying for his disciples. He's praying within earshot of his disciples, praying for their sake, right? He's kind of restating the history of what's happened for them. This isn't unique, by the way, right? We saw this in John chapter 11. Jesus is, is by the grave at Lazarus' graveside, and he's praying to the Father, and he says this. He says, Father, I thank you that you've heard me, 
And I knew that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around, that they may believe that you sent me. He's praying to the Father, but also praying in earshot of other people for the sake of their growth and discipleship so that they might also believe. See, at times, Jesus would pray to the Father for the benefit of those around him. Jesus uses this prayer to build this identity for his disciples. Look what he says. He says in verse 6 that they were given to Jesus by God, that they had received God's words in verse 8. And by nature of these two truths, Jesus presents a third truth that they belonged to the Father and to the Son in verses 9 and 10. Isn't that what he says there? I am praying for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. All mine are yours, and all yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. And Jesus is saying, because they were given to me by the Father, because they've believed, they're mine, and they're yours. They belong to us. They have fellowship with us. So these disciples have this identity chosen before the foundations of the earth, responding to Jesus' true word, being given by God to Jesus, and then being claimed as both the Father and the Son's. Now, it's in this context that Jesus wants to pray specific things for these disciples. Specifically, He wants to pray that they be kept that they be sanctified. What he goes on, Jesus is going to keep his disciples, or the Father is going to keep his disciples. In verse 11, I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world. And I am coming to you, Holy Father. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction, that the scripture might be fulfilled. But now I am coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have joy fulfilled in themselves. See, Jesus prays that the Father keep these disciples. He reminds them he's going away. I would like to keep a tally of all the times Jesus has said this throughout these uh, three or four chapters, Jesus is reminding these disciples, I'm going away, I'm going away, I'm going away. And here in his prayer, he's praying this back to the Father. In verse 11 and verse 13, I am no longer in the world. In verse 11 and 13, he repeats this phrase, I am coming to you. He said this in, in chapter 13, verse 33, in chapter 14, verse 12 and 28, in chapter 15, verse 5, in chapter 16, verse 28. And that's why he prays that the Father keep these 11 disciples in His name. That's what 11 says. Holy Father, keep them in Your name. Notice that that name's also given to Jesus. Keep them in Your name, which You have given Me. That's a weird thing, isn't it? The Father gives Jesus His name? What are we talking about here? Many times in the Bible, in Old Testament times and other places, you would find that someone's name was kind of a shorthand for their character, right? So Jason would be like stupid or something like that, right? You, you 
kind of found that someone was associated with, with some aspect of who they were. And so when you mentioned their name, it, it kind of brought up all of these connotations, and your name was kind of a, a really big deal. And so when Jesus is praying that he's entrusted the name, that he's given that name to Jesus, it's that Jesus has now taken on that character of the Father. We see it as a reference to the Father's power to save. That name that was given to Jesus to keep his disciples. And and now Jesus is once again asking the Father to stay true to that name, to that reputation. Father, save these disciples. Stay true to your name. You've given me this name, and so keep these disciples together. And so what he says next in verse 12 is of particular importance, that Jesus has already kept them. Look what he says in verse 12. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction that the Scripture might be fulfilled. Imagine as parents, if you were to say, you know, I had 12 kids. I only lost one. What is Jesus saying here? This is a question worth asking. How did Jesus keep the disciples? We can think back on any number of instances where Jesus just kind of kept his disciples on the rails, right? The prime example that I can think of is in Matthew 16 with Peter. And Jesus asks this question. He says, who do people say that I am? And they kind of answer a few things. And then he, he kind of delves down a little bit deeper and he says, who do you say that I am? And Peter responds with this glorious answer. He says, uh, you are the Christ the Son of the living God. That encapsulates saving faith right there. Jesus is the sent one from God. He is the Son of God. He bears unique relationship to the Father. And Jesus kind of gives this positive, reinstate, positive reinforcement back to him. In sixteen seventeen. he says, Blessed are you, for flesh and blood didn't reveal these things to you, but my God in heaven has revealed this to you. In the very next paragraph, Jesus is talking about how he's going to go to his death. And Peter objects, and he rebukes Jesus. He says, far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. Jesus, you will never die on my watch. I will never allow this to happen to you. We saw it in John 13. Jesus uh, is speaking about his death again, and and Peter rebukes him. But Jesus looks back at Peter, and this time he says, get behind me, Satan. You see how he's keeping Peter on the rails. He's encouraging faith, and he's rebuking the lack of faith. See, Jesus addresses Peter's successes and his failures to keep him, as it were, in the faith in Christ. The contrast is made clear in this prayer of Jesus in verse 12. By mentioning Judas, Jesus says it was that the Scriptures might be fulfilled. Judas is listed as this pre-known exception to Jesus' ministry of keeping, that he wasn't actually entrusted Judas, that Jesus wasn't given by the Father, that he wasn't kept by Jesus. The Scriptures were were fulfilled by Judas's betrayal. 
If we were to kind of look at Acts chapter 1, verse 20, uh, they, they're in the upper room and they're saying, okay, uh, Judas is gone and so we should probably replace him. What should we do about this? And they quote from Psalm 109, verse 8, may his days be few, may another take his office. And so they cast lots and they uh, find another guy to fill his spot. See, Jesus wasn't keeping Judas. Judas was lost. The son of destruction, as Jesus says. He heals of this in verse 13. Jesus wants his joy to be in these disciples. See, the upshot of this, this keeping by the Father, is a sense of joy, isn't there? Remember, in 1511, Jesus has already talked about joy uh, by abiding with in the true vine that's Jesus, by uh, living in his words and loving his word, we, we have true joy. These things I've spoken to you, Jesus said in 15, that, that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. Here, Jesus is des- desiring joy for his disciples. Now, there's the second prayer that Jesus says, Father, keep these disciples. And we enter into this final leg of the prayer in verses 14 through 19, where Jesus is asking for the Father to sanctify his disciples. First, he prays. Look with me at verse 14. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself that they also may be sanctified in truth. See, Jesus starts with this this prayer that the Father keeps these disciples from the evil one. These 11 disciples were going to be hated. In fact, tradition tells us that all 11 of these men, minus John, would go to a martyr's death. Peter would be hung on an upside-down cross. Others would die because of their faith. John would be exiled to the Isle of Patmos. All of these men would face persecution because of their faith in Jesus Christ. But verse 15 tells us that Jesus is not taking these disciples out of the world. Now, isn't that weird, right? Uh, Jesus has this group of 11 men that have been kept safe. And, And now he's saying they're not going to be taken out of the world, even though the world is hostile to him. It's here that we realize that kept and safe are two different things. If Jesus wanted to keep these disciples safe, He would have surely taken them out of the world. But when he's praying to the Father that they be kept, that's something else entirely different. If Jesus simply wanted these disciples to be safe from harm, they certainly would have been taken out, as it were. But Jesus has a different agenda. If we look at verses 16 through 19, we see that Jesus prays that they be sanctified by the truth, that they remain in the world, but be sanctified. Jesus presents this analogy then in his prayer. As he has been sent and sanctified, 
His disciples must be sent and sanctified. Notice he starts, he says that they had to be sent. They have already been sent as, as witnesses. In John 15, we saw this. And now Jesus is kind of reiterating this in his prayer. In verse 18, he says, As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And so John is saying that Jesus is praying for these 11 disciples that he's going to send them out into the world. If you're unfamiliar with the book of Acts, what happens from here is that Jesus starts in the city of Jerusalem and then kind of through persecution spreads these uh, Christian witnesses all through Judea and all the way to the ends of the earth. That by the time we're reading the book of Romans, Paul is saying that the gospel has, has reached the city of Rome. From Jerusalem to Rome, it's quite a bit of distance but also that Paul wants to take the gospel as far as Spain. The gospel is spreading and bearing fruit and increasing because these men have experienced persecution. But they also, not just must be sent, they have to be sanctified. Sanctified, that's a big word for us, isn't it? It's a strange word to us today. It means to be set apart. It's close to what that term that we use, holy. It means that we should be different in some sense, that because God is true and God is real, that he sets things aside for his purpose. And when we read through the Old Testament and Exodus and Leviticus and Numbers, there were things that were dedicated to the Lord's use, right? There were a whole group of people called the Levites that were kind of dedicated to this service in the temple. That's what their purpose was in the nation of Israel. There were utensils and instruments that were set apart to be used in the temple. And these things were not to be used for common tasks. Scripturally, see, there's two different kinds of sanctification. Sometimes we get these things confused. There's a definite sanctification or definitive sanctification, which occurs when we become Christians, that God kind of sets us apart and in the throne room of God, that you and I are sanctified, set, by the, the, set apart by the blood of Jesus Christ so that we're for God's purpose. And so there's this positional thing that happens that you and I are no longer um, uh, in our sinfulness, but now in God's sight, He sees us through the lens of Jesus Christ. We're set aside. It's, it's almost very similar to the definition of justification. But there's another way that the Scriptures speak of our sanctification that we call progressive sanctification. It play, takes place bit by bit, that as you live, you take on the character of Christ as, as the Spirit refines you, as His Word refines you, as God kind of chops off the, the edges, as, as it were, Christ cuts away the flesh like Eustace. See, when Jesus prays that His disciples are sanctified, they were not to see themselves as a part of the world. That's what Jesus prayed in verse 6, that the Father gave these disciples out of the world. They no longer belong to this idea of worldliness. Now they've been called into this discipleship, become something different. See, what we have here then is a prayer by Jesus, and he starts off to say that they've been given by God the Father. Been given by God the Father, they've been given His words, they've trusted His words, and now Jesus prays that He keep them. And not only that, that He sanctify them, that He change them. 
See, when we look at this passage, this prayer from Jesus, we see this, that God's Word has called, kept, and sanctified His disciples. If we look at verse 8, look at verse 8 with me. For I have given them the what? The words that you gave me. And they have received them and have come to know in truth that I came from you. God gave the word to Jesus, who then passed that word on to these disciples. And so God has given the disciples to Jesus, and as a, a matter of proving that fact, Jesus has spoken the words of God, and they have received them. Everyone else throughout the book of John rejected Jesus' words. Isn't that true? If you remember our time throughout the book of John, there was different breakdowns. In verses 1 through 11, we saw that, or in chapters 1 through 11, we saw that there was this book of signs. Jesus is showing himself through seven miraculous signs to be the Messiah. And he's telling them all the time that I've performed my works and I've spoken my words as I've been directed by the Father. And so when you reject me, you're rejecting the God who sent me. Jesus is this one who is bringing the words of God to his people. See, in responding to the words of God from Christ, these disciples have proved that they were given by God to Jesus. And from the earliest times in the scriptures, God's always done his work through his word. It was at the creation that God spoke the world into existence day after day. Day one, day two, day three, God is speaking the world into existence through his powerful words. It was the words of God which gave Abraham hope and moved him from Ur to Canaan of the Chaldeans. It was the word of God which shook the mountain and caused the people of God to tremble in Exodus 19. It was the word of God which, when Ezekiel preached, put flesh to the the valley of dry bones. It was the word of God, John has told us, that was in the beginning with God and was with God and was himself God. Jesus, the true word of God, come to live and to be amongst people so that if they believed on him, they were true sons of God. Jesus told us that the words of God, when believed, move us from this status of death to life. See, always in the scriptures, it's as Isaiah says, that God's word is doing God's work in God's world. Isaiah 55 is this amazing passage. In Isaiah 55, Isaiah, you know, God is speaking through the prophet Isaiah, and he says, For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there, but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my words be that go out from my mouth. They shall not return to me empty, but they shall accomplish that which I purpose and succeed in the thing for which I sent them. See, God's words are accomplishing his work. Here, not only did the words of God confirm the giving of these disciples, it's the words of God that sanctify. Look at verse 17. Sanctify them in the truth. How? Your word is truth. 
How are we to change? How are we to be sanctified? Through the powerful words of God. So Jesus also keeps us by his word. Jesus' words are meant to sanctify us. Jesus isn't this, um, this deadbeat dad. This deadbeat dad that creates children and then abandons them. His word creates his people and then he sustains them through his word. Jesus is not some abandoning father that just left home. Our Father doesn't just leave us to our own devices to try and figure things out. He doesn't just use His Word to create this faith in us and then just abandon us to do it on our own. What He does is He continues to speak His Word to us. Isn't that true? See, our God has saved and continues to save His people. I remember once my my friend was telling me this story. He was a, a traveling speaker, and he went to this church as, uh, as the speaker, and they, they said, well, we've only got five minutes, but we would love for you to give your testimony. And so this guy who's kind of new at speaking, he gets up and he, he starts to talk, and he says, when I was eight, I was saved from a life of drugs and sex and alcohol. And people were shocked. Wow, eight years old. And when I was 10, I was saved from a life of drugs and sex and alcohol. And when I was 15, I was saved from a life of drugs and sex and alcohol. And these people are, what is with this guy? What kind of life has he led? At the end, he said, I've never done much of those things outside of God's parameters. See, what he's highlighting is that he's saying, even when God keeps us from those sinful things, he's saving you realize that God has not just saved you from your past, that in the present, when we put away patterns of sin, He's saving us. When, he, when we don't walk in the patterns of the flesh, that He's actively changing and saving and sanctifying us from those sins that behold us. When we're given to ourselves, we're lost. See, God gives and keeps and sanctifies us. It's not just for these 11 disciples that Jesus is praying for here. The New Testament affirms that all of those things are true of us also, that that God gives us to the Father. The Father's given us to Christ, that we are part of His elected people, that we are, uh, through predestination, adopted as His sons. That we're kept, that there's nothing, neither height nor depth, nor any other created thing that can separate us from the love of God in Christ. That what Paul said in Philippians, that he who began a good work in you is faithful to bring it to completion, that he'll keep us. If he's called us, he'll keep us. So he's called us, he keeps us, he's promised to sanctify us, that all those who place faith in Jesus Christ will, will experience a life change, an ongoing renewal in faith in Jesus Christ. See, what Jesus prays here for these disciples, He also has done for you. 
See, we recognize this morning that this only happens because Jesus was sent and sanctified. So what Jesus says there in verses 18 and 19, as you sent me into the world, so I have sent them. And for their sake, I consecrate or I sanctify myself that they may also be sanctified in the truth. That Jesus has led the way in this, as it were. You and I aren't left to kind of trailblaze our own way in the faith. God has sent Jesus ahead of us. Our true righteousness, our true Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, has gone through all the temptations we face and yet has been faithful and has given us the Holy Spirit so that we also might be faithful in those trials and temptations. See, this morning, Jesus' words are a safe place for us. And if we are to change, it has to happen through the words of God, doesn't it? Removing ourselves from the world doesn't make us safe. Isn't that what Jesus says here? He says that, hey, uh, don't take them from the world. That's not part of it. For years, we've talked to ourselves about this process of sanctification. How do I change? And we've talked about influences, the things outside of us that are going to change us. We're going to make ourselves righteous by moving to some place where it's less sinful or by uh, closing off the gate to so many other sinful things. But what Jesus is saying here is that he wants us to be in the world. His answer is not to relocate us. His answer is to change us. Maybe you're here this morning and you've thought about sanctification that way. If I could just limit the negative influences. If I could just change the friends I'm around. If I could just uh, cut off these worldly things. The problem is that what you don't recognize is as much as you are in the world, the world is in you. You have a sinful heart that beats in your chest as well. And as much as you want to remove yourself out of these circumstances and all of these different places that you feel like contribute to this, it's your sinful flesh that desires them in the first place. So even if you go and build an igloo in Alaska, become friends with the polar bears, guess what? You're taking your sin with you. And you'll probably be jealous of their homes when you live in an igloo. I promise it'll happen. This morning, what we need is not a new scenery. What we need is a new spirit. The spirit we have inside of us is faithful to change us according to the words of God. I want to pray to this end that God allows His Word to change His people, to change us. We say this a lot. We talk about this uh, often. But I have to tell you, there is no replacement for the words of God, is there? There's no replacement for you to sit with the open Bible in your lap to hear from the Lord who speaks to you and applies those words to your heart and to your mind. Let's pray that God uses his word for his people. Lord, we pray this now. We pray, Lord, that you would sharpen us, that you would change us according to your will and your way. Remind us of your purpose that you sanctify us according to your word, as it's used by your spirit. Lord, we thank you that you've sent Jesus, that you sanctified Jesus, that we might also be sent and sanctified. 
we also pray in line with your son that you would keep and sanctify your people. Allow us to hear from you as we hear from your word. We pray these things in Jesus' Jesus' name. Amen.